From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another version of Wharton Moneyball virtual still, but everybody's in Pennsylvania. The Hope Crew is here. Audie Weiner, stats professor, Shane Jensen, stats professor, Eric Bradlow, stats and marketing professor, Kate Massey, practice professor, all at the Wharton School, your regular host and co-creators of Wharton Moneyball. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be here with you, even if only virtually good to see you. Looking forward to talking sports and analytics over the next hour. As we have been doing, we're going to open with some COVID-19 analytics. It's important context for us in the world of sports, obviously. It's also an interesting application area for many of the stats and methodologies we talk about. So we've been digging in for a couple of months now. I'm always curious. I'm always curious to think about, hear about what has caught your eye in the world of coronavirus. Well, so I start to see, I try to look at it from, at least from my both statistical and risk reward perspective. And, and here's the way that I've been looking at it. Maybe it's different than other people. And this is what I'm reading articles about it. So let's talk about the things that would make the coronavirus dangerous. Number one is conditional on I get in, t- in contact with somebody that has the coronavirus and that is actually still can spread it. I don't think the probability of my getting it has gone down. In other words, that part I don't think has changed. So to me, again, unless you believe, by the way, that the people that are out there are less risky or, ha- or less spreadable than it has been in the past. So that's number one. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that. As a matter of fact, you can imagine as people, why don't we just start with that start? Because I could have, I, there's five different areas I want to get through. Let's just start with that. Let's do, I mean, out of your both shaking heads. Let me suggest one quick, real quickly. Uh, there's an interesting piece coming out by Jessica Flack at the Santa Fe Institute on, on this whole world. But one of the things they talk about is these are hard to manage, these pandemics, because they're non-stationary. And one one feature of non-stationary that they suggest is our information changes, our understanding of things change. So even if the actual process isn't non-stationary in this way, that's the part I'm trying to get at. So so let me respond. Hold on real quickly. Then I'll give, I'll pass it over to Adi. I I agree that the actual contagiousness of this might not be different than it was two months ago, but I believe our understanding of the contagiousness of it is probably different. I think we used to think that you could get it off of a Mm -hmm. bottle of, frosted flakes you bought at the grocery store. And I think most folks don't think that's true anymore. Adi. All right. So I'm going to respond. I think you're, you're, you're correct and you're incorrect. So you're correct that I don't think the transmission is really any different, but there are two hugely different things now to, today than there were in early March or end of February. One, its prevalence in the community is way, way, way lower. So that the chance of running into someone who has the virus is so much lower now than it used to be. Audie, if you in, do in run, the, Audie, in the Northeast, in New York City, it may be quite the opposite in other regions. Oh, yeah. So, so of course, we're, say, we're Audie, centered at the, yeah. Audie, yep. I'll just be clear. You, you, just because we have, there's four of us, we have lots of time to talk about this. I was only talking about stage one, the contagiousness. You've talked about, you, you now want to go to stage two, but keep going. Okay, so so the second thing is, is that one of the reasons why it spread so rapidly early is that people genuinely had symptoms. They were coughing, they were, they had slight fevers. They did what many, many people do, did and historically when they had minor illnesses, they went out and about in their normal way. So the second I would throw to, to this is that people with those kind of conditions aren't coming anywhere near anybody today in, well, in today's world. So well, I think that's, that's, point. let's go point by point. So from what I've heard, the data I've read has not changed on the percentage of people that are asymptomatic. I've heard that number between 30 and 50%. I've not heard that number change. And so what about the fact that there may well be a large fraction of asymptomatic people, they don't have fevers, they don't have coughs, or they had one, but they don't diagnose themselves that way. So to me, that hasn't changed. But that's just that's a percentage of the total number of cases. And my first point was that the overall prevalence is lower. And the and the and so that the prevalence, the, the actual chance of randomly selecting a person from the county that we live in and, and them having uh, COVID-19 is or, or just is extremely small. And it's much, much smaller than it was a month, month ago. And that was the point of the, the lockdowns. We did this to make that probability much, much smaller. And I also think, and this is some of the new data that, that Cade mentions, is that it's known that, that asymptomatic can, people can 
transmit it, but they do think that when they do transmit it, it's first of all, much less likely to transmit it. And secondly, when you do get it, when you capture it from someone asymptomatic, you don't get the viral load that you get from someone who is sick. So we're talking, one of the things we talk about now is what is our individual personal risk profile for, for meeting with someone. And, and so some of us and many of are starting to meet with other family members, other friends, and small groups, which of course are permitted by the by law today that they weren't originally, but they are now. And what are what what are we supposed to what are we supposed to think of that 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 risk? And I think of it as a very very low possible yes, but a low probability event. So I just want to underscore. I think this is exactly the reason we're having this conversation. This before the show, we started kicking around who was doing what and. And we had different opinions. And so there, it really does have bite. This has purchase now. All these models and these seemingly abstract ideas we're kicking around matter because we're, we have a little more discretion in what we do now. Skin and in the game, as uh, we, Nissan well, Talib well, would say. Well, it's, it's a relevant decision parameter. We said, yeah. we, 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 before, you couldn't legally anyway decide whether you wanted to hang out with your sister. Now, you know, now this is just more in play and, and the norms are different. So it's more in play. And so I think this is super, super relevant. Right. Yeah, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about one aspect of the actual transmissibility that may be not, it's not just a knowledge thing. It's the actual transmissibility may be a function of things like temperature and stuff like that. We don't know that, How, right? Uh, what have we learned? Hmm? What have we learned about that? Yeah, no, that's actually what I'm curious about is, I mean, I mean, I don't think I've been reading, uh, quite as close as you guys have been about this particular aspect, but how much is temperature influential on actual kind of transmissibility between people? Um, and as we go into summer, you know, I mean, certainly other viruses have shown a real seasonality because of temperature and all these kind of other uh, environmental conditions. And it may not matter so much because, you know, a lot of the transmissibility we're seeing is probably going to be indoors where it's a little bit more kind of climate controlled and, and actually still stationary. But to the extent to which outside temperature affects transmissibility, if, if COVID is mo like most viruses, we should be sort of seeing a decrease in transmissibility kind of through the summer anyway. Yeah, just to build on Adi's point, which I 100% agree with, I think the concept, the discussion that I've been having the last few weeks on the air with you guys, I've been, you know, I'm always a dose response guy. I'm always a viral load guy. I'm, I, I, I hate experiments. I talked about this two weeks ago and last week. I hate zero one experiments on off. I don't think COVID is an on off thing. You uh, have a certain viral load of it, which could be from some upper end of the scale to zero. And um, I agree with Adi that if you believe in the premise that people that have higher viral load, first of all, are likely to have gotten sicker earlier, that's probably true. Um, if you're likely that they're more likely to be symptomatic, that's almost certainly to be true. Um, by that selection process, you can imagine moving yourself down the distribution of people who may get transmission, but they may get a lower viral load of it. Therefore, I agree with Adi, they're probably less likely to be contagious because of their viral load level. If you get it, you're probably going to get a lower viral load level of it. And I agree with Adi that that's exactly why you spent the two-month period um, you know, sequestering people. So in some sense, the heavy viral load people would get sick as much as they're going to be. You don't want them to get sick, but in some sense, it would prevent them from spreading the heavy viral load to the other people. Um, I agree with all of that, Adi. Um, I still believe, though, I'm a person in life that lives by the big N, small P problem, which is we have a big N, we have a small p, which I agree is likely decreasing for lots of things, but a big number times a small number is still a moderate size number. So here's an example. Let's imagine, Adi, I offered you a ticket tomorrow to a Sixers game. Let's imagine it was going to be played at the Wells Fargo Center. So there's 20,000 people at the Wells Fargo Center. And let's imagine the probability that someone that enters there has COVID with probability one-tenth of one percent. Not an unreasonable number. I don't think that's so unreasonable. Well, that puts the number of people, right? That puts the number of people there with COVID at 20. So now those 20 people could easily spread that to 50, 100, 500 people while they're at the game. Now those people spread it to other people. So even at a one-tenth of 1% number, 
a big number times a small number is still a number that I personally would find unacceptable. That's just for me. But this, but this is exactly what's being banned because of that. So let's, let's look at exactly the opposite, which is small n, so a small p, which is meeting up with a, a family member or a friend or not in an indoor arena with 20,000 other people, but sitting outside in a picnic right. table where you're right. separately separated or even take it even further um, to slightly smaller events. One of the things that, as I've mentioned on the radio before, my wife is a rabbi and New Jersey has just allowed 25 people or fewer um, to gather outside. And they didn't specifically say congregations, but, and, and her congregation is now permitted by law to gather outside, observing social distancing. Masking isn't required since it's outside, although it is recommended. And then the question is, what do you do there, right? So this is a real decision made by a real institution and it's a, essentially a small n, small p problem and not a gigantic n. It's not an arena and not indoors. And what should, we, what should we do? And this is, these decisions have to be made. So, Adi, we, this is a great question for all of you. And I think I know the answer, but I want to hear your thoughts. We warn students all the time, especially in probabilistic events, by simply taking just a multiplicative rule. Like you take the probability of this, multiply it by the probability mm-hmm. of this, probability of this. Is this one of those cases where you feel comfortable just doing that type of math? Like what I mean by that is you have N, you multiply the probability that someone has it, you multiply it by the probability that someone, given they have it, that I'll get it. Then you multiply that by the probability that given they have it and they give it to me, then I multiply it by another probability, which is that I become symptomatic as a result of this. I mean, I understand if, if by definition, if you, those are conditional probabilities, that by definition is true. They do multiply. I know. And and you multiply them. But are you okay with people doing this, what I'll call multiplicative statistical math, and that just multiplying all of these probabilities together will just be, I mean, mathematically it has to be true, but are you confident that people are multiplying the right conditional probabilities together or are they taking marginal numbers and just multiplying them? I think they're stated as conditionals. I mean, I think the, and I think I am comfortable with it. I don't think the numbers, each particular conditional probability is not that small. And so when you multiply them together, I think you do get a small number, but I want to emphasize there's two problems here. One is the personal risk and then there's the society concern. So one of the reasons why we continue to socially distance and continue this um, societal effort to keep people apart and not come together in groups, it's not even as large as the ones that we talked about at the arena, but even in smaller groups, is that infection is inevitable and the goal is to keep it from spreading rapidly. So I would argue that the probability of, it being, of catching it from a, a single person that you meet, particularly when you observe social distancing rules, while not zero, is sufficiently small to make it about the same size as the relative background risk you take every day. And that all of us should be engaging in these very small, minimal interactions, particularly to return to a sense of normalcy. And while at the same time preventing the larger groups where you get the larger and small p problem, which can then contain a... Can, can lead to a super spreader or a giant explosion of, of, of uh, cases, which then make the probabilities on the individual basis too large to disqualify. So you mentioned super spreader, and there, there has been some talk about these events. We've talked about it over the weeks here, but I find it interesting because when you, when you talk to people, especially who, who work, the epidemiologists, of course, but those in, in complexity science, they, they want to talk about we make big mistakes by just using averages. We've got to consider mm-hmm. the heterogeneity of this thing. We've got to, it's, it's got, it's, it's got different time courses. There's lots of variation that we need to consider. And at first those arguments sound like, like super intellectual, but then it turns out they have real consequence when it comes to interventions and how we got our lives. And I think this is basically what Adi's saying. It's like, look, what you have to avoid, you have to avoid those people who are super spreaders and you have to avoid those events that are super spreader events. So we need to proscribe accordingly. And then Adi's going to come behind and say, yeah, and that means that we can do these other things. And if normalcy matters for the health of individuals and economies or whatever, if normalcy matters, then we can allow other things. So that I think that attention to heterogeneity is perhaps really important where at first it starts out something like this academic intellectual thing. It might really matter um, in how we, how we address these things. Yeah, and I, and I think it's not just the, uh, you know, it's not just, I mean, averages are a problem because they ignore the heterogeneity in a population. But I think it's beyond just that recognizing that it's heterogeneity. It's also recognizing 
probably actually a fairly skewed underlying distribution, right, in which right. case the average isn't the right number as well. Like in the case of these kind of super spread, like it's, it's, it's acknowledging that our social networks and our inter, essentially our, our human human interaction networks, you know, there's some people that have a huge kind of like are, 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 are huge central nodes and other people are not. And it's really kind of, you know, like using kind of an average over these people that are, interacting with only one or two people versus interacting with a hundred people is really right. kind of essentially destroying like, you know, the actual, or, or you're, you're hiding the true dynamics of the underlying process that way. Yeah. I, I, I just want to thank Cade for bringing up his point because even if I had all of those conditional probabilities, I, I could not agree with you more. Even the premise that there's one set of them, which applies universally is wrong. Um, and you know, and I, but I also agree with Adi in that in some sense, at some level, you know, I think for six years now on Morton Moneyball, the two words that have come out of my mouth on everything, whether we've measured something in sports or everything, has been effect size. So I like the idea that Adi is describing, which is, so what's an acceptable level? Like if it's the baseline level of just normal going outside, I think most people would say, okay, well, I'm willing to do that on a personal level. If it's 10 to 15 times what it was in the past, that's an effect size that many of us may not be able to live with. So Kate, I think your point about which I had forgotten when I was thinking about this multiplication, we all have a different multiplication depending on our age, our comorbidities, um, who we're in contact with, et cetera. And I think that's important to bring out. You can't just take an average and just apply it and multiply it through. And, and what, Shane's point is about how one version of it is in networks, how, how much of the interaction happens through s special people. If we don't all have the average number of connectivity. It's, it's very skewed. And so the yeah. ones you really want to be careful about are those that, that are highly connected because they're carrying disproportionate risk, essentially. Yeah, that no, is, and, I, and I think yeah. among the four of us, we probably have ha exhibited somewhat, you know, there's heterogeneity even among the four of us in our behaviors through all this. But I think we're probably, our behaviors aren't so different that we, I, I think our effect size is basically the same magnitude at least. But then you look at somebody who's like a delivery person or something like that, like they're, they're kind of either a job or, or whatever necessitates that they interact with a lot more people. Though that, that person's effect size could be an entire magnitude off from us. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and that's actually what's, what leads to almost contradictions. Like what I would prescribe for myself is not necessarily what I would prescribe for other people because they have a totally different risk profile. They see different numbers of people. They have a personal risk issue. Which different is different kinds of people too. And right? different kinds. Like if you're interacting with, you, you know, through your wife and everything, you're interacting with probably with a lot more senior members of society than for example, right. I am. And that you want to bring that into your calculations as well. Yeah. Right? She had to do a bunch of funerals and, and had to, she was well masked and participated in them, but, but there was nothing we can really do about that. I mean, and you just have to accept that, that basic risk, but I want to point to, there's been some efforts to put this in context and it's very easy to do extremely badly if you tried to give one number. And just to follow up what, what Eric said, there is an effect size and that effect size is incredibly variable. But the what makes it particularly so is it's not just factors of 50%, 25%. It's really literally factors of hundreds, even a thou thousands. Absolutely. So and that makes it so, so difficult. So the New York Times actually ran an article, which I was extremely disappointed in. It began properly, which to, to create this idea of what they call micro morts, which are essentially risks of one in a million. And it puts everything kind of in context. And the reason why one in a million is about right for, for a randomly selected person, we have about a one in a million chance of dying on any given day. That's kind of about the, the, the baseline probability. And so he reports that for COVID-19 in New York City, it's 50 times higher than that. And then he, in the next sentence, he says, and that's, but that's an average age of 38, implying that for a 38-year-old, it's 50 times higher. But it's actually completely false. That, that number is approximately right for about a 75-year-old. For a 38-year-old, it's actually lower than one, one micromort. It's, it's essentially ab about the same as the regular risk, which, which we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that to really understand the daily risk of, uh, of COVID-19 and adjusted for age, it's about twice your baseline or it equals your baseline. Yeah, I, I like your point, Adi. Um, I think, you know, that's 10 seconds, as you said, it's a societal issue. So my risk factor for myself and my calculus may change a lot depending on who I'm planning on being in contact with. And so you're right, while the risk factor for me at my age may be moderate, if I plan on visiting my 87-year-old mother or something else, I may take an entirely different strategy depending on who I'm going to be in contact with. 
So guys, how does this all apply to decisions to reopen schools? And I thought, you know, give it, we have kind of two perspectives on it. One, all of the ways we're talking about it, and we're saying all of these nuances have prescriptive implications. So great, let's apply it to this. But also we're educators and we're part of an institution that's making these decisions. So we don't, we don't necessarily have inside information and we don't necessarily need to share inside information early. But how do you think about when, how, schools open given all that we've been talking about schools as in universities or schools as in elementary schools let's and high take schools. the ones that we know which is you know best which is universities so school you know some some schools have announced you know notre dame was one of the first last week to say we're going to open early we're going to send them home after things before at thanksgiving not bring them back a lot of schools are making those kinds of decisions you know Penn's considering lots of things it's a huge decision that's affecting all levels of society all over the country We've just talked through a bunch of complexities that should have implications for when, whether, how schools open. I'm curious how you think about it. I mean, you're going to be teaching or not in some condition that's affected by all of this. I'm curious what your perspective is. So I'm, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm not coming into a classroom with 100, 100 students. This is not happening. So unless there's a way to give me a big room with small numbers of students, which I, I think highly unlikely, or unless there's a vaccine or some kind of, or a tremendous drop in the, in the prevalence in the community so that the infections are essentially zero. So you gotta open yourself up to possibilities that things can change. But or if things- is, is, is incredibly widespread testing, would that be a game changer? No, not well? necessarily, because that's all about spread and explosion into the community. So there's two issues. There's a societal impact, and then there's my impact personally, right? So those two things are, are not the same. And so the issue for, for, for testing is to make sure that it doesn't become, we don't go back to where we were a couple months ago. And the issue for me personally is whether I get infected. So on the other hand, Shane, you're younger than me, and we have, we have professors who are quite a bit younger than you. If I were in that very young group, I don't think I'd have a problem at all it's teaching in front of that, class, in that, that classroom. But I'm not so young, so I wouldn't do it. And in fact, what I would probably lobby for is either have an online teaching or have my teaching put off until it's, until it's later where it's less, less risky. Well, um, Adi, one more variation on that that many schools are thinking about is smaller class sizes. So you could divide, you know, classes, a student could rotate between an in-class component, online component. You said you won't go with 140. Would you go with 25? I, I would. I, I would go with 25. What's it drops it by six. Um, What's the number break? I guess it has to do with the, with the, with as, if, as long as I'm able to stay, you know, decently far away from a decently small group of students. I mean, listen, one twenty-five over one phone is a factor of six. I think that's a good enough uh, reduction to probably warrant thinking very differently. Yeah. So let me go back to your other comment, Adi, just before, is that if I did that, then I have to realize, at least in my view, for myself, there's a cost associated with it. And let me give you an example. If I'm going to increase my risk factor by doing that, then I have to say to myself, am I still willing to go visit an 80-plus-year-old relative? Mm -hmm. I still so to me, if Penn or any institution wants me to go into the classroom, which we all agree is certainly an increased risk on me delivering something online, then you have to, in my view, you don't have to be willing. I shouldn't use that word. I would not be I – I would make sure for myself – that I changed my other behaviors knowing I've increased my risk. Yeah, I would, I would argue that following up on that, that it's not the time while I'm teaching to be visiting my elderly relatives. Yeah, but, but Adi, so what do you do? Let's go from the other part of Kate's question, which is what do you do now for the students? So 20,000 students come to campus. I agree they're rotating in and out of classrooms, but they're still interacting. Maybe there's parties, they're going into the buildings, there's small hallways, all of this stuff. Do we allow them, do we say to them, um, you, obviously you can't enforce this, but you can't visit your family, you can't go on break, you can't go on break trips. Uh, you've chosen to, you've chosen, you have your right, you've been chosen to increase your personal risk, but now you're gonna, we're going to restrict where they can go. All of a sudden, 50 of them go on a bus to New York City or go up there. I mean, so that's the challenge. Do, does Penn or any institution want to be the source of increased risk to which then people might not make the same choice as you and I would about who to visit? I would counter, not counter, but respond by saying whatever the, the government requirements are for, for aggregation, we should be following them and not more and not less. So if the government prevents you from saying groups of 50 are not allowed, 
no bus rides, then we make sure we don't do that. If they say 25 is okay, then we can do that. And I think that by, by trying to individually kind of create rules, I think that's a, that's a no-go. And also, these rules are made to protect society as a whole, and we should follow them and, and scrupulously. And, and individual requirements, we should leave up to the individual. So if the students... Can, 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 I, can I say, mm-hmm. can I just interject to say that we are talking, especially with the students, about an age bracket that is not famous for their compliance <laughs> to rules, right? So, uh, and, and you know, I'm not going to comply with they great are. to say that all our 20,000 <laughs> campus students should follow these rules, but are they going to? Well, I just came from a park right near my house where nobody at that age is following anything. In fact, I have an, almost a comical story where I was riding my bike and I saw a bunch of a bunch of young people hanging out in front of a bar in Maniunk and I was talking to him and another one came over and was about to high five that his friend and he kind of looks at me and he says, you know, not now. And the impl- implication was old guy nearby, don't flaunt our lack of social distancing. <laughs> So uh, if you had one request or wish for how we go about doing things, fantasy or otherwise, what would it be? I think mine would be some outdoor classes. I'd be very happy to teach outdoors in any weather. I just wish we had more forums for doing so. I know it's not a cure-all, but it might be helpful. I, I, could, I, could, I would handle more students. I'd be more comfortable. I'd be more comfortable for them if we had some outdoor spaces to teach in. Could we partition it. the football stadium, have like, you know, 12 simultaneously mm-hmm. classes in different sure. corners of it? That's not the only stadium, right? We got lots of, we got amphitheaters. We got, we got. That is marvelous. Marvelous idea, Shane. I'll take a, I'll take a section and line up. I would, I would teach 70 out. No, I mean, it's not, I, it's not the worst idea I've ever had. Certainly. You know, I would even let them sit there with their laptop so they can see the lecture and then I could have it there in uh, in mine and we can have a discussion. I think, I also think outdoor um, office hours would be perfectely acceptable to me. Um, Uh, that's interesting. Good All ideas. Right, that's been good discussion on coronavirus. The coronavirus this 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 week. We'll keep on uh, paying attention to that and learning what we can and sharing what we learn. Come back after the break, and we'll talk a little bit more sports, maybe some COVID nineteen related to sports. But we'll dive deeper into. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. We're talking sports and analytics, a little bit of COVID-19 analytics in this half hour, more on the sports side of things. The whole crew is here, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We're all in the state of Pennsylvania, still mostly sheltering in place. Guys, the most watched golf event ever on cable was this past weekend. I'm curious what you thought. This was Tiger and Manning against Phil and Brady. Tiger and Manning pulled it off, but they only won one up. Y'all watch this thing. I saw like one replay. What, what, yeah, no, what did you make of it? I was a little surprised they only won by one in the end because, you know, going in, you know, we'd already, we'd already talked in advance. So, you know, it, it was widely recognized that Brady, certainly compared to Manning, was the worst golfer. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure why they came up with the pairings because it seems like they actually paired the better golfer with the better football player at golf. And so like, I, you know, like, like why was Tiger with Manning when they're both kind of among the football player and, and, and golf player uh, sets, like the better components. Didn't they get strokes of some kind? They got, they got, it was, they didn't quite play handicap. They got some help. Yeah. So let me just say what the, um, just for our listeners, let me just say what the format was. So uh, the first nine holes was four ball. So everyone played their own ball. Whoever got the better score, uh, that team won the hole. Um, on three of the holes on the front nine, both Peyton Manning and Tom Brady got one stroke. So, you know, if they got a par, that would be a net birdie, et cetera. Um, so I watched the event, and there were a lot of things that Let came out. Let me just out. say that's not much of an advantage. If you were actually playing to handicaps, they would have gotten a oh, stroke on more. every hole. And, probably and two Brady would have on. gotten more strokes than Manning, too. There Although, let me just say, this. so let me go through my quick list of things that struck me from the event. So, obviously, let me start with the one that's the most positive. So, I'm obviously a big Tiger Woods fan. Um, Tiger Woods hit every fairway. And so, um, even Was the he hitting driver? Yes, and driver. Um, he hit every green in regulation, and he hit every fairway. Um you know, Justin Thomas, who both is a friend of his, who's also a member of that course, was also doing, was a number four player in the world, was also doing commentary. He said he had never seen a better looking Tiger in the last five years. And so maybe the three months rest helped him. But Tiger looked fantastic. He was launching the ball. His irons were great. 
Um, he obviously wasn't taking every shot, uh, but he looked really, really good. That was the good news. Mickelson was all over the place. Um, the first thing, the second thing I noticed was that, you know, Tom Brady listed as an eight handicap. Now that means for those listeners, that means you're going to shoot low 80s. Um, he probably had low 80s on the front nine. And so he looked terrible. I mean, he, uh, you know, if you were really counting, he may have had eight to 10 on the first three or four holes himself. <laughs> and I'm talking about balls that were duffed, shanked into the woods, uh, topping balls. Was and it so, nerves? Was it nerves? Well, that's the thing. So I, I think it was a lot of nerves. I think that um, he started playing around the sixth or seventh hole. He start, Forget the shot that he hit in. I mean, people, he, by the way, just so you know, he hit one in on the par five. I think it was seventh hole. He hit one in from over 100 yards. But let's remember, he was sitting over 100 yards from the green on a 500-yard par five in three. So he was sitting there in three. <laughs> Most other people would have eagled that hole. He birdied the hole by knocking it in. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Brady did not look good. However, I will say he hit that shot, which was important. He hit an eagle putt from about 25 feet, yeah, which was a was, very important shot as well. Um, that was their greatest hole. Nick, that was, Mickelson basically drove the green on a par four and then Brady putted it in for eagle. Exactly. On the back mm -hmm. nine also, this was another, since it was alternate shot, Tom Brady found the fairway on most holes. Now you might say, well, what's the difference? Who cares who makes, well, then Phil Mickelson is shooting the ball into the green. Peyton Manning, on the other hand, was not finding the fairway, so they had to use Tiger Woods' drives on the back nine, and then it's Peyton Manning hitting the ball into the green. Um, all right, Ch changing gears a little bit, this, a small issue, the, the, the Belmont Stakes is going to be the first Triple Crown race this year. Usually it's the last. But yeah. Usually it's the last and it's the longest. So it's always unusual. Mm -hmm. You're like, can the, can the horses who run the shorter races win this long one? But they've shortened it from, from one and a half miles to one and eighth. What, does anyone know what's going on there? And what, anything else about the Belmont Stakes we need to know? Well, I don't well, understand why they shortened it. I mean, what, what's the point? It, it's, a, it's a mile and a half. It's interesting. Let it, is it because it will filter out or create a, a perverse um, filter at the first stage and you won't get enough people in the other two races? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, Adi. They're, you know, as you know, um, they, what do they care about the most? Obviously, they care about the history of the sport, but they also care about the money. And so what makes the Triple Crown races interesting is when one horse can possibly still win the Triple Crown. They're worried that if the Belmont's first a mile and a half, most of these horses, as you know, Adi, they never run a mile and a half, ever. And yeah, so yeah. first, it'll filter out a lot of horses. A lot of horses won't even choose to race. Therefore, they mm -hmm. can't win the Triple Crown. The ones that win the race will be so tired Therefore, they can't win the Triple Crown. Right. They probably can't go to the Kentucky Derby two weeks later and run in that race. And so to me, it, it's definitely an asterisk. Um, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah. But secondly, um, it obviously increases the chances of a Triple Crown winner, for sure. Absolutely. It definitely increases the chances. Well, they could always run the Derby. About, who, who are they have? What's the sequence now? Is, is, I, think it's, I think it's the Belmont, the, the Derby, and then the Preakness. Okay. Now, what is, how many uh, will people will be in attendance? Have they decided that? Is that I nobody? haven't heard yet. I think it's still, I think the race isn't until maybe September. I don't mm. think it's like the race is coming up tomorrow anyway. Well, the horse, so the horses will be different ages than they usually are. Yeah. Right? That'll well, that's be another interesting. That's a huge issue because horses actually get faster as they get older. Surprise. Um, but, uh, and this is limited to three-year-olds, which is they're, they're very young. And now they're going to be a little older. I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to keep the, the age um, right. you know, determination the same? And then all these, these, these horses missing their, their opportunity? Or I don't know what's going to happen. Probably the same season. They'll keep them in the same season. Yeah. They'll just be a little older. And all no, like I think it. your point, Adi, is any, well, not, I mean, the Belmont, it's irrelevant anyway, because it's never run at a mile and an eighth. But let's say somebody, as I think you guys know, I'm also a big Secretariat fan. Secretariat yeah, yeah. this day holds Such the Such a front-runner, Eric. Tiger Woods and Secretariat, come on, man. Such well, a front-runner. You've got to own it, Eric. I, I like the <laughs> being a front-runner. By the way, Mr. And now you get to enjoy it with your quarterback, too. In no. <laughs> Mr. Of course, Mr. Massey Peabody NFL doesn't want to recognize that I've loved the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the last uh, 20 years and including a team that hasn't won a playoff game since the Super Bowl. So let's okay. not make it seem that I'm only a front runner here. You get some serious problems. <laughs> 0 and 26, baby. 0 and 26. Anybody exactly. who loves the Bucks. But they get my, point, my point was um, clearly they're not going to count. I don't know how they could count if a record was set this year. I mean, again, yeah. Secretariat owns the record still to this day, you know, 47 years later at all three of those tracks in the same year. 
So um, any record that was set, I don't see how they could possibly count. I think sports this year in general, I think there, there's going to be a lot of asterisks uh, <laughs> handed out. Asterisks? I don't even know what the plural of asterisks what, is. What, what yeah, sports would not what sports would that not apply to? So maybe track and field. That's like pretty sure. Right. So anything tennis. What, I mean, why would a tennis match? Well, I'll, I'll, well, I'll tell you why. So, um, you know, Novak Djokovic, who's the number one player in the world, you know, we could argue one of, certainly one of the top three ever that, you know, we could, you could pick between Federer and Nadal Djokovic, pick your own favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, He's made, he came out with something today, just this morning, which I thought was a strange thing for him to say and admit to. He said he's ready to play today um, because of his, essentially because of his wealth. Um, he's been sequestered at a place with tennis courts and trainers and playing partners. And so he's ready to play. And you're <laughs> like, okay, well, if I'm the number 10 player in the world, let, let's take the best the top U.S. player right now, which I think may still be John Isner. I don't know if John Isner has that wherewithal kind of or he's yeah. been doing the same. And let me just, I'm not saying John Isner's going to beat Djokovic, but he could beat him in any given match. But that probability has to be greater now for Djokovic, at least in the next couple months. And so, you know, you say tennis, Adi, but you yeah. could asterisk next to this, you know, saying he's had greater ability to prepare than other people. I, I'm going to, I'm going to counter by saying, I would guess that the, the preparation accessibility goes pretty deep into the uh, the top 100 in terms of the availability of, of courts and maybe not quite at the extent that Djokovic has, but goes down. One of the things I'm interested about is baseball. What are baseball players doing? And are they really able to play or, or practice or prepare? And, and are they going to be ready when they do open the baseball season, which I really hope does happen? One interesting item I did, did pass through my Twitter feed was the availability of renting a minor league stadium per night with you and your friends, <laughs> total access to the, to the, the playing field, sleep in the clubhouse use batting practice apparently they put this up on airbnb and they quickly sold 30 it was fifteen hundred dollars uh, a night for yeah. up to 10 people looks like a great deal i'm totally yeah, in guys you want to go down? i would do that <laughs> yeah. and we, we could teach classes there you know before, yeah. the, before the game <laughs> that's right so on the yeah. baseball front have y'all been paying much attention to this thing i've, I've i was sometime in the last couple of weeks we've talked about what's going to happen the 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 players union is negotiating and it felt like surely they wouldn't let economics get in the way because economics have to suggest something's better than nothing. There's at least something to divide. That's right. But it sounds like there's such distrust between the union and owners and that there are, are knock-on consequences. Like the, I think the players fear that if they give something up now, it's going to set a precedent for the next contract negotiation. Yeah, I, I, so it, essentially, I think – that the obvious answer to play ball and divide it somehow and don't worry about it might not carry the day. Yeah. I think they're really kind of concerned about like any kind of revenue sharing percentage type system, because it's a, essentially a salary cap. And you know, the, the, the baseball would baseball players and baseball union, I think has, has, has kind of fought against the salary cap, you know, for generations. And so I think it's really kind of, you know, the play, the baseball players would like to kind of, do some kind of prorated salary thing. The owners would like to do a salary cap or at least a revenue sharing type uh, system. So yeah, I'm a little surprised just like you that there, this has been enough of a holdup, but I, I do think it'll get settled. I think so we'll have uh, educate me made, a little bit. assuming nothing changes dramatically in the COVID situation that we'll have baseball in, in early July. Well, certainly you, you'd still a lot of money to flush down the toilet. So you would think that there's a lot of motivation to overcome even those important differences but tell me about yeah. this preference for not having a salary cap we of course are very accustomed to having caps in baseball i mean in basketball and football and it's seemingly good for more parity and baseball certainly suffers from lack of parity also i'm not sure who how deep those benefits go the top players benefit but surely it would the, the empirics would suggest that that is a relative few. So I'm curious why, because from a bargaining perspective, I like this, this, this revenue sharing idea, like pick a number and split it. You're like equally responsible, but it feels principled. So, so tell me more about the reservations in MLB historically. Yeah. So um, I like the way baseball does it. Actually. I like the idea of a penalty function, if you like, which is, there's a quote unquote soft cap. And if you go over it a certain amount, you pay an extra dollar. If you go over it another amount, you pay an extra $2. If you go over it a certain amount again, you pay an extra $3 for every dollar you spend. Um, I think 
It allows teams the freedom to make selections. Um, you can always tweak, and they do tweak annually, where those cutoffs are. They could change that from $1, $2, $3 to $5, $10, $20 if that leads to an imbalance in sports. And I mean, Adi has done this analysis every, at least I've heard it, I'm sure he's done it for 20 years, but I've heard you talk about it on our air on Wharton Moneyball for years about the correlation between spending and performance in baseball is there, but it's not a correlation of one. I mean, there is, there is, no. there is a no. fair amount of randomness there. So I like it, you know, just like you talked about COVID risk reward, a team that chooses to spend $300 million in payroll, um, there's a risk reward associated with that. I like the soft cap penalty function rule in baseball. I don't mind it either. I do think that like a salary cap in baseball would have to probably come with an accompanying salary floor. You know, uh, you know, we, we talk about the kind of the ceiling. Well, they do have one. A pit. Hmm? It's $600,000 a year right now. Well, okay. A more real, I, I, I think if you're really talking about parity, you're talking about you, you want to kind of try and reduce the inequity of spending between teams. And as much as the Red Sox and Yankees and Dodgers drive some of that inequity with their $300 million payrolls, a larger part of that inequity is like, you know, the Miami Marlins with their 50 spending 30, essentially yeah, trying right. to spend the league minimum, basically. Yeah, right, um, right. And, I, and I think, you know, I, I, would be, I would be okay with kind of a salary type ceiling in baseball, but I do think that they'd want to kind of accompany it with some kind of floor that would keep basically spending in, in a similar magnitude or something like that, you know? It's it's a little hard to do in baseball because of the of the the six year lockup period and those the first year and then the second year and the third year you can't even you can't even uh, bargain or, there's no arbitration so a lot of these 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 teams that are really keeping their salaries low are doing it by having a whole lot of young players and um, and so what are you going to do counter them you you must hire veterans or you must somehow play or you must or, or, or it, might, it, yeah. it would send or it would pressure teams to uh, sign long term some of their players right I mean. So the yeah. Miami Marlins are able to kind of keep that, or the Oakland Athletics are able to keep they their sour, you know, their overall payroll low because they play these young players, and then once they hit the actual expensive part, they're gone. Goodbye. And they're you know, gone. as a fa- if I was a fan of the Miami Marlins or Oakland Athletics, I would be, you know, that would, you know, I wouldn't mind them keeping some of those guys around. So, fellas, one of the leagues that's moving a little more quickly to actual play is the NHL. They have approved a 24 team playoff format. So they're going to drop, they're going to drop the worst performing teams to this point in the season. They're going to forget the remainder of the regular season games. And then they're going to do this interesting thing with the playoff format. I think they're giving like eight buys to the top four teams in each conference. And the other teams begin a kind of a play in round to get to the actual playoff. So the NHL usually has four playoff rounds and now they're going to have five essentially with the first one being a play in round. Um, Which is only a round of five. It's only a best of five. Best of five. And let's also note that the teams that the teams that got buys, the teams that are getting buys, the top four seeds, will play a little round robin. And the point of that will be one to seed amongst themselves, but also probably more importantly, is to get like warmed up. While the other teams are playing for the first time in two months, they want to play a little something. All right. What has been the reaction to this? What is your reaction to this? Overall, what do you think? I want play as fast as possible. Right. Well, interesting, Adi. They sound like they're going to be they're going to do this thing that we've speculated on for a long time, and that is they're going to locate every all the teams in just a couple of locations. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be this concentrated geographic thing, which is kind of it's kind of good fun. But Shane, I figured you'd have some thoughts on the hockey thing. Yeah, I mean, it's there's been some you know articles written and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting, like you know, deciding on this format, like how many teams basically to include in it, right? And I think that's kind of an interesting decision-making exercise because you want to kind of, to a certain extent, respect as much as possible the regular season that came, that was there. You know, like if you have this kind of play-in tournament, a team that's like ranked fifth, you know, like 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 a team that's ranked fifth in its conference is to a certain extent you know, kind of getting a little bit screwed, I guess, sure. because they have to, they, they yeah. have to play against a team that they wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't even be probably in the playoffs. Not be because otherwise. of a one point or a two point difference in their record. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, whether, whether or not 24 was the right amount to include, whether four teams get buys was the right kind of level. I think it, it's sort of like an interesting calculation. And obviously it's not just kind of a, a, a inclusive to the sport calculation. You have to recognize again, 
part of that, probably the 24 team tru- structure is motivated by the fact that, you know, like kind of the logistics of having to coordinate all these players in, in these like hub cities or however they're doing that. There's also been speculation that it was motivated by what's, what teams were included that might have been excluded. If it's it had been true. A having a few big, that. like, so, you know, the, one of the speculations is Montreal is right on the bubble. I think they're like something like, you know, 10, 11 or 12 in their conference. And, and the Blackhawks, Montreal, the Blackhawks as well. The Blackhawks yeah. would have been excluded on a 20, on a 20 team format, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I like the way that Shane has kind of laid it out, but you know, I must admit, let me say the good news. I like the fact that teams that in some sense are so far out of it that they don't have to resume playing. That doesn't yeah. bother me. Matter of fact, I'd be okay with that in basketball too. I have no problem with that. The problem I have though, maybe it's, you got, we've talked about this because hockey's very different. Um, no eight seed has ever won the NBA playoffs, right? And as a matter of fact, very few bottom seeds ever really go anywhere in the NBA playoffs. But hockey, it's not true. So yeah. if I'm the team right now that's number 25, I'm thinking to myself, look, there were whatever, 15 games left. I could go I, 10 and I 5. Could have been, I could have been a contender. Yeah. yeah but no, no. But the it, thing is, in hockey, it's not even that un- – it, it's not like no. it's a one in a million. You yeah. could actually win the Stanley Cup. You could. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, that's right. So we talk a lot about tournament design. It's fascinating to look across the world of sports and see these different tournament designs. Given – Look, there's always going to be trade-offs, right? You can't come up with a design that's going to solve all the problems. But, Eric, let's build on your point. Given what we know to be true empirically by, about the randomness in hockey outcomes, how might you tweak this format? How would you like to have seen them go about it to, to recognize or embrace or take advantage of that randomness? Well, one thing, you, of course, you could do is you could embrace the randomness which is to allow those eight teams or maybe even the bottom 16 to have a play in, right? So you, everyone has a chance to make it in, but you can't have it rounds of five or seven. It would extend it too long. You could have best of three, let those bottom 16 teams, every one of them, everybody has a chance to make the right. big tournament. Right. Like and so like why it. not? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's the way I would have done. I would have embraced the randomness, made shorter series to start, let everyone have a shot. Well, and, the, and, and, and one of the things you could do in that design then is not privilege the top four in each conference. So the difference is right now they're drawing these two differences. The bottom teams are excluded. The top teams give a bye. You could, the, you could have that bottom playoff cover a lot of teams. I guess if you want a 16, I don't know what we're talking about. You buy, you, 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 you play off, you play, I don't know. There's some version where you let all the bottom play into then a 16-team format where nobody gets a bye. Because the bias is bias, such a huge advantage. Yeah, it, it's just that that would then kind of you know to the extent that the regular season was meaningful at all, it just basically established a seating for like a, a March Madness type tournament. Yeah. So let me exactly. ask you a question, uh, Shane. Let's imagine uh, this is another way to think of an effect size and norm the probability. Let's imagine the bottom eight teams in hockey, right? So that's twenty five percent of the teams, right? If I gave you those eight teams. Right now, they have no chance of winning. But if I gave you those eight teams and said they were in this playoff format, how much probability would you assign to those bottom eight teams? Like, I think if we agree, if the NFL did this, we probably – there is randomness in the NFL, but we probably wouldn't put that much probability that a bottom eight team would win the Super Bowl, you know, given all the rounds. Where right. would you put it in hockey? Obviously, you're going to say less than 25%, but how much less? Yeah, I would say even like, you know, I mean, somewhere between 1% and 10%, I would say. It's not a high probability, but it's certainly – I think it's higher than any of the other major sports in the U.S., I, I love I love what you've done with the design, Eric. I think it's just perfect for hockey. It would have been a much a much better way to go. Speaking of lotteries, there's rumor that the University of Texas, assuming there is college football played, that there may be a lottery involved with how you get tickets. So this just raises the question. We've been talking about they can't fill the stadiums, but maybe they can mm-hmm. fill them twenty percent, twenty five percent. Maybe there's some way to do it. But we've not talked about okay, then how do you do that? How do you allocate? tickets whenever if i want to make money why out. wouldn't i do an auction like yeah, why I aren't think, they do an auction yeah, sure and that, well, i mean they should probably divide it up so that there's a student auction and then there's a you know a sub oh, booster fellas, auction and fellas 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 y'all are such academics come on you can't I, auction you can't say 20, 20 or what? just set a price i mean look i just i just read yesterday the prices of tickets to europe are just gonna are gonna double 
because they don't. Well, so we so look, we know, we know intellectually this is the way to maximize revenue. An auction would be the revenue maximization thing. But from a fairness perspective oh. and perceptions, you can't do that, right? There's no way. I mean, they're already pushing it with these personal seat licenses, which is essentially a two-part pricing deal, which is going to maximize revenue. But I think that uh, anyway, this is the question. It's like, how are these things going to be done? It's only a rumor at the university, mm-hmm. but the rumor was all season tickets will be refunded. By the way, not the personal seat license piece, which is kind of like what you give to the athletic department. But then among among whoever wants to, they lottery. They lottery in you know twenty thousand people a game instead of a hundred thousand. And then what happens when you win the lottery and you turn around and resell the ticket? Is that going to be? No, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, you're just Very basically pushing away the making you're sure the University of Texas you're, doesn't capture someone else does. Ticketmaster gets it or whatever. I think it's. I think they should. I mean, I understand the idea of reserving a set of tickets for students, for example, and make sure that they can't resell them because they are, they, they, uh, their name is attached to them or they have to come in with their student ID in order to get in. And there's a, that can be handled in some possible way. But I think that frankly, there's yeah, the mean, only, uh, they're either a, a, multiple prices or an auction or it's the only reasonable way. Yeah. To do I, it. I, I think Audie's kind of recognizing that like, if there's, if, if resale is allowed at all, you are essentially doing an auction system anyway. It's just that you're not actually <laughs> getting the money from it. But guys, but there's a fair, I mean, people prefer many people, especially in, there's something about the public, big public aspect of this. People pre- think queues are more fair than auctions. And so you've got to, you're, 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 you're stuck between wanting to maximize revenue mm-hmm. and wanting to, meet people's sense of fairness, especially, especially if you're a, maybe, maybe especially if you're a public institution. I mean, but Eric, you're, you know, how much would you pay to go see, to see Brady's debut at the Bucks? We know you've probably scheduled eight trips to Tampa Bay for the fall. Well, how do you feel about the way the Buccaneers allocate tickets in the stadium? If, if say they go to one fifth or something. Yeah. So um, let me just say, um, I normally, by this time of the year, I'd have my entire Buck season planned out. I'd have all my trips booked, et cetera. Um, I only have one game. Actually, it's a road game. I only have one game booked at the moment. Um, but I agree with the other guys. Um, it's an auction system now. Because if you give away fractional tickets, they're going to get resold. As a matter of fact, they're going to get resold at much higher prices. I tend to not like things that are regressive taxes on the poor, if you'd like. The person that's had tickets for 30 years and going to buy a ticket for 80 or $90 is going to have a very low chance of – they may get the ticket, but they'll end up reselling the ticket. Um, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. Uh, and watching, like- watching football on TV is not so bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, that is true. I mean. Well, hopefully this is a problem we have because that would mean that there's some football to be played. So hopefully this is something we're going to talk about in future weeks. But I, I, it was interesting to me. I hadn't heard it talked about and we hadn't talked about it. And there's some interesting wrinkles in there. So helpful even to hear your initial reactions. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. Even during these pandemic times, we will be back next week. Please join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports.